We're in Daniel chapter 2. Last week we looked at the introductory material having to do with this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and he was quite uh, upset about it. He went out through all the land and got his wise men to interpret it. They couldn't recall the dream to him, neither interpret it, and now Daniel is going to do both. So we pick up there in in verse 31 of chapter 2 of the prophecy of Daniel. Hear now the word of the Lord. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing holes, and the wind carried them away so that not a piece of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever, uh, he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you will rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. And some of the families of the the firmness of iron shall be in them, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, as they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. 
Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Calvin says this passage is, and here's a sentence out of Calvin's lectures on Daniel. God wished under this figure, that is the figure of the great image, God wished under this figure to represent the future condition of the world until the advent of Christ. That's what this passage does. This passage gives us pure predictive prophecy. That's why at the very end, Daniel assures the king that this is a certain prophecy. It's accurate. It's faithful. He can depend upon it. And that was the thing that most impressed the king was, was Daniel's ability to recall in detail the actual dream, which the other wise men were not able to do, and then to give him this interpretation. And so this particular piece of scripture, strategically located here where it is, gives us an overview of what we need to see with respect to God's working in all of human history. All of human history, way back as far as you can go into the book of Genesis and on back to creation. Human history, as far as you can go forward from the days of Jesus Christ and the events of the first century recorded in the New Testament. And then on and on and on for at least now 2,000 years. This is a pivotal time in human history. And this time period covers about 550 B.C., which, give or take, maybe 20 years, would be the time that Daniel would be giving this prophecy. And then it would be 550 years before Christ would come in Bethlehem. So here Daniel is filling a gap. He's also turning a corner in human history. He's saying all of this past history, human history, is summed up in and taught in summary and in essence Babylon. The future are these intermediate empires that will come and in due course there will come Jesus Christ, the King. And he will come during the course of the fourth empire. And his kingdom will commence and will be established and will become operative. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, will push all the way through this final period of history into finally eternity with a new heaven and a new earth. So in effect, we cover all of human history with Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon is the kingdom of man. The new Jerusalem is the kingdom of God, his Christ, and it is the people of God of all ages that have come through the human history on both sides of Christ historically and are part of a people of God 
citizens in a kingdom of God that is ruled over by Christ and that will live forever. The statue represents Babylon and the kingdom of man. The stone is Christ and the kingdom of God. Now you've heard me sort of pop off <laughs> in sermons where I say, if you don't understand the kingdom of God and its essence and its flow and how it goes through Scripture, you have a hard time understanding Scripture. And many of our arguments in the, in the church over the last 200 years has been over the nature of the kingdom. And the purpose, as Calvin says, this is to represent to us the condition of the world until the advent of Christ. So let me try to be survey. Let's take first the kingdom of man. Ron, you said it's Babylon. Well, I remember there's other kingdoms. There's Egypt, there's Assyria, there's Babylon, and then we go into the kingdoms that we'll mention that are in the vision. Let me suggest to you that while there are these other kingdoms, they were not empires. The first primary kingdom that was an empire that controlled the whole population of the earth and everybody found a center in it was a tower that was built. That's Genesis 11. In Genesis 10, we have how all the people went over the face of the earth following the flood in Genesis 6 to 9. Stay with me now. I'm going to be a history teacher for a few minutes and try to, but this is big, broad strokes. This will hopefully this will raise more questions in your mind than it will answer, but it will raise the right questions. From God's perspective, human history, from the creation through the flood is a great epoch of time. And from the flood, when God started over, having saved the remnant in an ark, God started over in Genesis chapter 10, and there's a table of nations. Ham, Shem, Japheth, they scattered out all over the world. They inhabited different places. And one of the great personalities of that era, in fact, the greatest personality there, was a man named Nimrod. Nimrod dominated this Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And in so doing, he started two great cities, Babylon, and he started Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And, and to try to cut it down very briefly, the Assyrian Empire was nasty, dirty, mean, powerful. They conquered, Jer Jer uh, not Jerusalem, but they conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. They, they slaughtered people. They were a wretched empire founded by Nimrod a mighty hunter, someone that was out to go for, to hunt for blood and carried implements of death and destruction. But they never really ruled over much of an area other than that little small place coming down the Tigris-Euphrates Valley into the smaller parts of the land of Palestine, that, that fertile strip that's right along the Mediterranean coast. The other city that was founded, first and foremost by Nimrod, was Babylon. And Babylon encapsulates all the essence of the kingdom of man. You remember the Tower of Babel? You remember the dominance that they had over the world? And when time came, Babylon was the first one to begin to seriously conquer larger countries in every phase. We talked about it in our first message on this a couple of weeks ago, how that it was even Babylon that defeated the, the, uh, the empires, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. And so it was during this Babylonian dominance. And it goes all the way back until the most dominant region of the Babylonian Empire was Chaldea. 
Who came out of Chaldea? Abraham. He came out of the Ur of the Chaldees. 2000 B.C. In other words, even in that far back, Babylon was the dominant empire. It, it completely subsumed the Assyrian. It was related to the Assyrian. It was founded. It was the same, the same kind of animal, the, the kingdom of Babylon. And so the kingdom of Babylon represents all of human history up to that point. And now we have Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of the whole empire of the greatest empire that dominated in many ways, but it now had been uh, confederated and, and, and consolidated and established. And it was the first time this kind of massive empire had been seen upon the face of the earth. And as the Lord looked down upon the face of the earth, it was basically Babylonian rule. So when we come to this moment, we know how God told Israel that he was raising up the Chaldeans in the book of Habakkuk. He said, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They were a pretty small, a powerful group at that time, but they eventually took over the whole thing. Well, when we came time to have Babylon to be the dominant ruler, uh, they had established an incredible culture, literature, language, an elaborate religious system, and an incredible military, and an even more incredible uh, economic order. And so Babylon was by every measure the greatest empire in human history up to that point. God not only used Babylon to destroy Israel or take them into captive, so many of them, and then and, and tear and destroy the temple and do all that they did to Israel, but God used Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to punish the other nations. And there's a whole bunch of them in the prophets. I'm just going to pick out one. This is Tyre, T-Y-R-E. It was the great seacoast town there on the Mediterranean. It was the uh, world trade center of its day. And there's a lot of chapters here in Ezekiel, about three chapters, where the prophet Ezekiel prophesies against Tyre. Now, I'll tell you how bad Tyre was. Back in Israel's history, Tyre had a king, and that king had a daughter. And that daughter married a king of Israel. And that daughter caused a lot of trouble in Israel. It was Jezebel. And so Tyre is this massive uh, trading center. In fact, it's situated, if you look at your map, it's on the very east side of the Mediterranean. And it would bring in the commerce from what we think of as the isles and going the coasts and moving toward what we would call Europe, Greece and Italy and those areas there, and even over to Asia Minor. So that's what Tyre, but listen to what God says. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings. There's a prophecy in there in this era of time with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a host of soldiers, and he will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. It's interesting how God threatened Tyre with Nebuchadnezzar's army against the daughters of Tyre. Jezebel's uh, sorority. So now we have this, and let's talk a little bit about what the scripture says about this image. It was a vision of an image, and it was a man. That kind of tells you all you need to know. This is a great picture of the kingdom of man, or the kingdoms of man compositely really make one man. 
And we'll see down through human history until this good hour, there's a conflict between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And there's also a lot of confusion as to what exactly is the kingdom of God and the nature of the kingdom of God. And I think every one of us need to learn as much as we can about these two. I will not in any means say the final word on it today. I, I don't think I know the final word, but I have some vision and I want to help you at least make a few distinctions in your mind as you set up because this has to do with how you understand scripture if you understand it historically and critically across the, the, uh, the ages. This is what God's up to. But listen to what he says. This image is of a man and it was big and bright. It was big, it was a colossal image, and it was made of metals, and it was shiny, it was imposing, it was actually terrifying, and they didn't have any cinema in those days, but Nebuchadnezzar saw this in the dream and it terrified him. He didn't know what it meant, he didn't know anything about it, but it just terrified him, this particular image, and he saw in it the terrifying image, and what he was looking at was man's kingdom. Now, if, if you're a thoughtful person, you will be terrified too when you take a close look at the kingdom of man. But let's go on and see what he says here. Here's what the image looked like. The head was of gold. And God's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar that this is Babylon. And it's Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He's the direct descendant of the great king Nimrod, the king of man, the one that is opposed to God. He's in the lineage of the Tower of Babel and all of those things that raise their heads against the true God of Israel. This, this great image, then the chest and the arms were of silver. We're told later in the book that that is the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius, who had started an empire over in Elam or over in the edge of Persia, the Medes, and then they went together by conquest with Cyrus the Great, and you had the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. You read about it in the book of Daniel. This is, uh, and we'll get to some little more of this history to fill in. The, th the third kingdom, the head is Babylon, the chest and arms are made of silver is the Persian Empire. And one of the things he said is this empire is inferior to you. Well, they conquered a little more square footage or square mileage. So they were bigger geographically, but they were inferior in culture. They were inferior in every other way, economically to the kingdom of Babylon, the, the Medo-Persian empire. But yet they were a worldwide empire, a great uh, empire. The, the next empire is pictured in the abdomen and the thighs, and it's made of bronze. And this is the Greek empire. This is the empire that was put together by Philip of Macedon. Macedonia, and then his son, Alexander the Great, and they went all over the world conquering. Remember the great, you probably read about this in history. I know most of you probably know your world history pretty well, and you know that, that there was uh, great wars between Greece and, and uh, Persia, and as Greece began to grow, and, they, and finally they conquered, they conquered the Persians. So now we have the great Greek empire with all the Hellenistic culture and the episodes of the, of the life of, of um, Alexander the Great, but you know he died very young, and his, his kingdom was given to his four generals. One was from the territory up near Macedonia, north of Greece. Another was from what we would call Asia Minor, the modern Turkey. And then, but the two most powerful ones, and the two that affected Israel the most, was the general that had the, the southern kingdom around, around uh, Egypt. 
and that was the Ptolemies. That brings us down eventually to Cleopatra. Then you had the Seleucidan dynasty for Syria, which covered that northern place, going up toward uh, all out of Israel and going up toward the uh, Euphrates uh, area. Uh, that is the great empire that is bronze. The fourth empire was pictured as the legs and the feet, and it was made of iron and clay. You've heard of people saying you have feet of clay? You know, this, this is kind of the background to that saying. That's the image. Gold, silver, bronze, iron and clay. The colossal image. What does it mean? Well, here comes Daniel to give the meaning. And so he tells Nebuchadnezzar, the gold is you, O Nebuchadnezzar. You are the king of kings. And now Nebuchadnezzar it has this great empire that I described earlier, but listen to the language that I think is kind of helpful. You, O king, the king of kings, that's an interesting phrase, in whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, because God is still sovereign over all of humanity and all of history, but he grants to kings and puts them in places and raises them up and takes them down. That's what Daniel is telling the king, you've been given the kingdom, and listen to this language, the power, the might, and the glory. That's Lord's Prayer language. We're talking about the absolute sovereign over all. And when we attribute that to the Lord God, we're giving it the right attribution. But in terms of man's perspective in history, in this day and hour, Nebuchadnezzar received all of that. There was a sense in which he was elevated to a status of deity, and he was, he was honored that way. But listen, it goes beyond that. Um, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, wherever people have moved across the face of the earth, Genesis chapter 10, you now, Nebuchadnezzar, have the authority over them, the control over them, the children of man. All the whole human race. Listen to this language. The beast of the field, the birds of the heavens. Sounds like Genesis chapter 2, doesn't it? Remember, God called on Adam to have dominion over all the earth. Adam never quite got around to it. But the generations following, Adam did. And while God wanted Adam to have dominion over the earth and see that it was productive and that it was was a prosperous and that it was governed in light of God's word. The human history is the story not of having dominion over the earth, but having dominion over their fellow man. And so the way of the route of Cain was chosen, that of might and power, brutality, bloodshed, rather than the way of Abel. The way of Abel was humble blood sacrifice before the Lord in forgiveness of sins. So mankind by and large has been going the way of pride the way of aggression, and the way of conquest in trying to carry out the mandate of Genesis 1 and 2. And Nebuchadnezzar is that guy. He represents that system. He represents that worldwide dominion. It says, uh, you are the head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar heard that he was the, represented by the head of gold of the great, 
the great image. Then he says, I'm going to give you another empire. This one is inferior. And we go from the great empire of the Babylonians to, as I mentioned, the next one, the Medo-Persian empire under first Darius and then Cyrus. And we mentioned the nature in which they were inferior. Then came the Macedonia Greek empire. And it was divided into four parts, more divided still, inferior still, but following the same track of the kingdom of man. So now as we come along, there's a fourth kingdom. And it is going, and it's represented by the legs and feet, which are made of, a, of, a, of an alloy, of a mix of iron and clay. One extremely strong, one brittle, one representing the might and power of the empire, but the other representing its, its uh, um, uh, malleable character and its destructive power, how that it can break in pieces and, and be reformed. And what he says about this kingdom that, that makes it different, this fourth kingdom, he says, strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron crushes, it shall break and crush all things. This is the Roman Empire, started by the conquering Caesars, first Julius and then Octavian or Augustus Caesar in the first century BC, taking over basically the world of the Greeks and then extending it even further. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, shall be a divided kingdom. Rome was a divided kingdom. And it's divided again and again and again. And the history of Rome has an early history, the Roman Empire. It has a medieval history and it has a modern history. We're living now during the Roman Empire era. We're, and, and here's some, and some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw mixed with the soft clay. There have been parts of the Roman Empire over the years that has been mighty and destructive and strong and will. And then there's been parts of it that have been soft and that have been malleable and that have been destroyed. And, and one of the things that, that uh, uh, characterizes this empire, you say, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you can see, the iron mixed with soft clay, they will mix with one another in marriage. So what you've seen is a massive ethnic blending across the Roman Empire in its, in its days. They will not hold together. You've seen attempts to bring it together, the Holy Roman Empire, all the way up into our day, various treaties in Europe and surrounding areas, bringing it all the way up into our day with things like the League of Nations and the United Nations, keeping a residual. The thing that spread the Roman Empire around the world beyond what it had was its technology. It always led in technology. By and large, and this may sound like a controversial statement to some of you, but, but, but the east of the globe has basically prospered and basically followed the west or the Roman uh, empire in its technology and in its development. And it's, it's adapted and in many cases done better than we've done in the west with some of the items of technology, but, but it is the Roman empire is the world. It, it was reinforced with the, the, um, the Britannia, because Rome had already conquered Gaul, Hispania, Britannia, and all of these places 
before it ever really moved in and took over stronger parts of the east that moved down toward the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and then moved over into what we think of today as Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and, and the outpost of the empire. So uh, you have to think about your history and think about the, the imagery to, to see that this is the, the, the fourth empire and it's a different kind of empire than those. And it's also different that it's lasted so much longer. It is an enduring empire as far as the human race is concerned. And so it's mixed with soft clay. They mix one another in marriage. They will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And here's the key thing. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. So now he's talking about the kingdom of God. And where the kingdom of God is illustrated in the dream is with the stone. The stone comes out of its of the mountain, and uh, <clears throat> I need to finally follow the admonition of Charles Spurgeon. He said, don't be too oriental in your preaching. <laughs> I remember reading that years ago. Don't be too oriental in your preaching. And I think what he meant was don't spend 25 minutes uh, talking about all the powers of the empires and all. You need to get to Christ, and that's where we get, we get here. We'll talk a lot more about Christ and his kingdom hopefully as the days go by, but this is what it is. It is the stone that comes rolling out of the mountain. It is from on high. When God wants to do something with humanity, he starts with a mountain, whether it's Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai, or Mount Calvary. And he brings forth from that. No human hands involved in this work. It's divine. It is the kingdom of God. It's different. Its king is going to come. And that's what you have during this period of time is you have all the history leading up to the coming of Christ because the advent of Christ took place during the early, earliest years, in fact, within the, the early century, first century, of the rise of the Roman Empire. And the fullness of time was a time when Rome ruled the earth. It was a time when Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed that brought Jesus' parents to Bethlehem, to the place of promise, to have the little virgin, a little babe born of a virgin there. And that begins a whole new kingdom. We're starting all over. We've got a new ark. We've got a new savior. We've got a new ruler. We've got a new king. And this is the king of kings. The Lord of lords. This is the king that is going to take us rest of the way through history. And this is the king that's going to take us through all eternity. This is the king that's really going to fill the, the Adamic dominion covenant. He's the one that's really going to bring past all that God promised in the creation. It's the king that we'll talk about over and over. It's the king that's going to assemble a people. Let me close on this note because this may just give you something to think about. Here's a king that's going to have a citizenship in his kingdom. And who are these people? They are the Jews. Israel. Historical Israel who are now in captivity but whom God will fulfill all of His promises to return them to the land. And He eventually brings them back 500 years later. 
He brings them back. That fulfills the promises in the Old Testament that God's going to bring Israel back to its land. Not what happened in 1948. God fulfilled his promises. And he brought them back and they reestablished. And they had somewhat of a government, but it never quite got there. And God brought them through the, the, the Syrian, I mean the, uh, uh, the rule of Persia. And then Greece. And then Greece broke up and, and God brought them through incredible trials. But it's the, it's the remnant. Not all of Israel is Israel. It's the remnant, the believing remnant that trusted God through all of the trials of, 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 uh, of the Babylonian captivity and all the transitions and came back to that little land and put in, built the second temple and, and just suffered under Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucid dynasty and all of these other things. And you read about a lot of it in the book of Maccabees, the, the, uh, um, the, the rule and things that we don't have time to go into. But God kept this remnant. And then Christ came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Christ came, he was the king, and he began to preach that they repent, that they turn, and they become believers in him. And all those that believe in Christ, the Messiah of Israel, were the ones that are part of his kingdom. Jesus talked about entering the kingdom. He talked about receiving the kingdom. We've talked about all of these things. He, he talked about the kingdom all the time. He gave parables about the kingdom. He even quoted before in his trial, which by the way, I guess they were taking a, a record at a trial. He even quoted scriptures out of Daniel to show that he was that king of Israel. And so the citizens of the king, the kingdom, are all of those believing Jews. They're called the remnant by Paul in Romans. They believe in Jesus. They are his people and the promises are focused in them and the promises are fulfilled in them and they have everything they need in Christ. And then along comes the Lord as he leaves. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples to all nations. And the whole Old Testament was filled how God was going to save the human race through Israel. And so the only way to get into the kingdom of God, if you were a Gentile, was the same way it started, by faith, like it did with Abraham. And you come into the kingdom, so now you're the wild olive branches grafted in. God's people is Israel, the true Israel, the remnant of Israel, with all the Gentiles who by faith come to Christ and believe in the king of Israel and trust in him, become part of that. And so the citizens of the kingdom of God are those people, the Jew first, Paul says over and over, but also to the Greek. And by the reason he said Greek was, even though Roman uh, dominion had just started, it was in its first 100 years, the whole world was under Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. And so it was the, it was the other part of the world. So the way you become a part of the kingdom of God is you come through Christ. He's the way. He's the door. And so when you come to Christ, Jew, believing in your Messiah long promised, you become a believing Jew, a true son or daughter of Abraham, because all that matters is faith, not circumcision or anything external. And you bring in all the Gentiles, all those of all the other ethnic groups come into that same body of people. And let me say one thing and I'll close. The church 
the believers that we know, which is predominantly Gentile in, in, this, in this day and time, did not replace Israel. The church, believers in Jesus Christ, the church is Israel. The Israel of God. The true people of God. And when God talks about all the stuff He's going to do for Israel in the salvific way and savingly, He does in Christ and in His people, which is the church. Jew and Gentile. Of all the centuries, of all the existence of the whole Roman Empire until Christ comes again. Now when, when Calvin said here that God wished under this figure, the image, to represent the future condition of the world until the advent of Christ. He was telling Nebuchadnezzar what would happen from 550 B.C. until the birth of Christ. And the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, we always think of it in our day and time as twofold. There's the first advent, and then there's the second advent. But I'm not sure that's the biblical way to always think of it. That, that's convenient categories. That's the way we've always thought of it. But let's think of it this way. It's the advent. It's the coming of Christ. It's the coming of Christ in His saving power at Calvary's cross. It's the coming of Christ of coming out of that tomb whereby He becomes a new man, a new creation, a new Adam. Fit for all eternity for a new heaven and a new earth and already. And those that are in Him by faith have that heritage. God promised in the Old Testament He was going to destroy Israel. And He did. He disciplined them over and over. But finally in 70 AD, using the power of Rome, that iron crushing, He destroyed the nation of Israel. He destroyed their temple, He destroyed their priesthood, and He destroyed their, what was left of their dynasty. And the true seed of Abraham the true heir to the throne is Christ Jesus. And so now we have a new kingdom, a fifth kingdom, an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. It is the kingdom of Christ. It is Christendom. But even Christendom has already 2,000 years of suffering just like Israel had to do during those years of punishment with, by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, even the Philistines going back all the way to the Moabites in the desert. God's people have always been persecuted by the kingdom of man, the enemies of God. That's exactly what was happening here. That's exactly what's happening in our day. The kingdom of man, Caesar, is persecuting and eliminating the kingdom of God. Christians. Israel. The true Israel. God's people. Once again, John, i got to stop. We'll have to... Is it okay if I stop? Is it okay if I stop preaching? Good. <laughs> John is my cue. When he goes to the piano, I'm supposed to shut up. And, I, and, and like I did back when I was trying to be an actor in high school, I missed my cue. Let's stand together and sing. <laughs>